today, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about we tell life-changing faith stories. I happen to have a steel brand chainsaw and a couple power lawn tools. So consequently, I now get their e-newsletter about every month. And it contains some helpful hints on taking care of your tools. Mostly, it's an advertisement to get you to buy more of their product. But in this last month's newsletter, I noticed that down at the bottom, there was a, an invitation that says, tell us your steel story. And there was a link to click on where you go and write your story about the day that your saw or your trimmer saved the day because the company knows that a personal recommendation, a personal story will sell a whole lot more products than the fanciest advertisements around. Well, long before chainsaws and weed trimmers, Jesus knew that a person's story was the most powerful, life-transforming tool available to us. And here's the good news. We each have a story to tell. And what's more, it's the most familiar story we have. It's, it's your story. It's my story. I don't have to stop and think, listen, my story, you know, i got to learn this. No, you've lived it. You know it. Thus, our value, number four, is we tell life-changing faith stories. Now, I want you to say that one out loud with me this morning. You ready? We tell life-changing faith stories. One more time. We tell life-changing faith stories. And so in, in light of that, I want us to revisit one of my favorite New Testament moments this morning. The books of Mark and Luke both tell it best. Mark chapter 5, Luke chapter 8. I'd like to remind you to go home today, read the stories in their entirety. But for now, I would just like to tell you the story. And actually, the story begins earlier on the day. So we have to back up into Mark chapter 4, verse 35, to catch what's really happening here. Because Jesus makes what seems to us an offhanded comment, something that we just blow right past in Mark 4, 35. It says, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side. Now, we don't take note of that. That's no big deal to us. But not so here. The other side of the Sea of Galilee was Gentile territory. A region called the Decapolis. That's a Greek word. Two Greek words. Deca meaning ten. Polis meaning city. Decapolis. Ten Greek cities. However, these ten Greek cities were under the umbrella of Roman control, which irritated that side of the lake as well as it irritated the Jewish side of the sea because they too were under Roman control. Now, at the time of Christ, this was a flourishing area on the other side. There were exquisite temples and huge amphitheaters for entertainment that dotted the landscape. And the arts and literature flourished here. Sports was big in the Decapolis. Imagine that. All of this was just across the Sea of Galilee, about five miles as the crow flies from the borders of God's territory, of God's people. Some of these structures, I think, probably on a clear day, you could have seen. You know, and, and if the wind was from the right direction on some of their festive days, you probably could have heard the sounds of the celebration or maybe even caught a whiff of the food that was being fixed and prepared. The area was also home to a Roman legion. A legion was about 6,000 Roman soldiers. This would have also made the disciples uncomfortable because they were already under Roman control. But to be around Roman soldiers was something they didn't want to do. Remember Simon the Zealot, his goal was to do anything he could to rid Israel of Roman influence. 
Now, every Roman legion had its own icon or its own symbol. And this one was no different. But do you know what it was? Was it the head of a lion? Was it an eagle? This particular Roman legion's icon was the head of a boar. Boar's head. Pig head. Now, tell me, folks, of, of all of the animals, which was the most despicable, nasty, yucky animal in the mind of the Jew? It was pigs. So here, here you got the disciples. They're going over to the other side where there's a Roman legion whose emblem is that of a boar's head. I have to wonder if when Jesus was telling the story of the prodigal son earlier in his ministry, that if he didn't point when he said, and he went, a, and he went off to a faraway land, squandered his father's inheritance, and ended up feeding pigs. I, I wonder if when he talked about a faraway land, if he didn't point across the sea to the Decapolis. Not far away in miles, but far away in values. You see, these were pagan, idol-worshiping, pork-eating, Jew-avoiding Gentiles, and that's where Jesus had just invited the disciples to go. Let's go to the other side. Now, I got to tell you, this story seems really relevant to me. I'll be honest with you this morning. I grew up in a different culture. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I thought you grew up in Indiana. I did grow up in Indiana. Just down the road, about 80 miles in Dubois County. But it was a different culture. Everyone looked and sounded pretty much like me. Caucasian, German-English background with a southern Indiana twang in a county named for a Frenchman. <sighs> my story was not much different than any other story from the kids in my class. It was a different time. Had someone said, let's go over to the other side, I would have understood that to mean let's cross the street and walk down the other sidewalk. The only people I knew who weren't like me were missionaries who came to visit. But through the years, my culture personally has changed. As a kid, the, the very thought that I would someday preach in India, Austria, Moldova, and Belarus, why, th those kinds of thoughts never entered my mind. That I would walk through Red Square and that I would teach New Testament preaching in Moscow seemed utterly impossible. God has taken me out of my comfort zone so many times in my life, not the least of which was in India when the snake charmer came with his basket of cobras to visit us. I was way out of my comfort zone that day. And, and now, now I can walk down Kirkwood Avenue in Bloomington. I can walk out here in the foyer of our church building and meet students from these countries and so many more countries who are here studying at Indiana University and whose presence here in our congregation enhance who we are. I love what students from around the world bring to this family. I've learned that it's a good thing when God takes us out of our comfort zones. It may not be easy, but the end result is often life-changing. Trust me, when Jesus offered this simple invitation to his disciples, they knew they were in for a change. This was going to be a different culture. They were going to be way out of their comfort zones. But I'm telling you, what happened on this day changed their lives forever. So who are these folks in the Decapolis? Well, according to Ray Vanderlaan and other scholars, the rabbinic tradition in Jesus' day noted that the Decapolis was the area where the seven nations of Cana settled down. 
Now, who are these nations? Well, Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1 tells us, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. Paul, the apostle, then adds in Acts chapter 13 that God overthrew the seven nations and gave that land, the land of promise, to the Israelites. And so the remnants of those seven nations settled in that Decapolis. Now, if that's true, and I believe it is, this story takes on huge significance. So just hang on to that. We'll come back, all right? So the disciples and Jesus all piled into the boats and they headed across the, the Sea of Galilee. About mid-lake, they encountered a storm that scared the daylights out of them. They finally woke Jesus, <laughs> who was sleeping through the storm in the stern of the boat. And with a word, with a word, Jesus quieted the storm, stilled the winds, calmed the waves. Boy, were the disciples going to have a story to tell when this day was over. This was incredible. Who was this man that even the winds and the waves would obey him? Arriving on the other side around dusk, the disciples took notice of their surroundings and found themselves amid limestone caves and tombs. They just exchanged one fear, the fear of the water, for another fear, the fear of the unknown. Now, I'm telling you, nobody likes cemeteries in the sunlight. But at dusk, with a cool breeze in the other territory that you're uncomfortable with, <laughs> there is no way. They are really out of their comfort zones. Ne nearly every, every scary movie has a cemetery scene in it with a chilling breeze, eerie shadows, and mournful sounds. This was one of the moments for the disciples when the hair on the back of their neck stood up and their goosebumps jumped up and hugged each other. They were scared, all right? I mean, they were petrified. Most of us would avoid that kind of fear like the plague. And, and, and really, isn't that why we don't tell other people our story is because we're scared to death? The thought of doing that makes the hair on the back of our neck stand up and our goosebumps jump up and hug each other. You see, expressing our spirituality to somebody else, that's not cemetery scary, but it is scary. Am I right? Let me guess. You can talk to a non-believer about your favorite IU sports moment or your favorite movie or the best meal you ever had at the local restaurant here or the next new vehicle you plan to buy without breaking a sweat. But the moment you venture into a spiritual discussion that may be as simple as talking about the nap you enjoyed during the sermon, you suddenly have your stomach knot. Your hands, your palms get clammy and you stumble over your words. Am I right? I know the feeling. I really do. That's uncomfortable for me. You would think, wouldn't you, that a preacher would find this easy to do. Well, I don't. I, I, I fear that I'm going to say the wrong thing. I fear that I'm going to offend somebody with my words. I fear that the person might be insulted by my approach. So, better just keep my mouth shut and just live a good life and share my witness through the deeds that I do. That's what our gut tells us. Consequently, fear often hinders our ability to talk about our faith. But God never called us to what is easy or to simply hover near the center of our comfort zones. I believe the truth of Jesus Christ, folks, is a matter of life and death. 
What kind of a human being would I be if I saw you trapped in a burning car and didn't try to help you escape? What kind of a Christian am I if I let fear keep me from telling my faith story to someone who is trapped and lost in the power of sin? I believe that fear is one of Satan's most well-worn tools in breaking a Christian's resolve to speak the truth in love to somebody who needs to hear it. So as the disciples are trying to take in their surroundings, they're caught off guard by the mournful howls and the painful cries coming from somewhere in the craggy cliffs. Then without warning, a demon-possessed maniac comes running at them full tilt, fast as he can go, screaming at the top of his lungs. I would have passed out on the spot. But you would have too. The demoniac drops to his knees in front of Jesus and shouts at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of the most high, in God's name, do not torture me. Wow. The disciples have just come off of the, the Sea of Galilee through a storm. They're trying to figure out who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him. And, uh, and here the demons, the arch enemy, tells him, the son of the most high, in God's name, don't torture us. Jesus looked at the man, but was addressing the demon. He said, what's your name? And the demon replied, legion, for we are many now. Oh, people, legion. Legion is a loaded word on the other side. Remember, there's this whole Roman legion garrisoned there. And the demons begin to beg him again and again not to send them into the abyss, the bottomless pit, where they will spend eternity. They pleaded with him that they be sent or allowed to enter the herd of swine that were next door. And he granted their request. And when they entered the pigs, the herd ran down the hill and drowned in the sea. Oh man, what a loss. All of that bacon. (laughs) Goodness. And you thought deviled ham was a newer recipe, didn't you? I told that at our Bible, men's Bible study. Got the same response. There must be something wrong with it. <laughs> so why do the demons do that? Because they're cruel? Because they don't like pigs? Probably all of the above. But I think, the, I think the answer is far deeper. The demons were trying to get Jesus in trouble with these pagan people who were so susceptible at that point in time to Satan's influence. And if they could get Jesus to leave the other side, their work would be easier. You see, you see, legion did not want salvation to come to the other side. Oh my. And it very nearly worked. But Jesus knew that the loss of 2,000 pigs could not compare to the loss of one person's soul. Can you put a price tag on your soul this morning? Can you put a price tag on forgiveness and peace and everlasting life? What is your soul worth? Is anything in this temporal world worth clinging to if it costs you everything else? Now, in Judea, the crowds had flocked to hear Jesus preach. They had brought their sick and infirmed, and they loved it wherever Jesus went. But on the other side, 
There were no crowds to greet him when his boat slipped up onto shore. Just this demoniac who came running out of the, uh, the limestone crags. The demons had robbed him of everything important. They'd robbed him of friends and family, home and health and mental clarity. He was an outcast from the community. They'd even tried to chain him to the rocks, but he was so strong that he broke the chains, only adding to the persona of who he was with these chains clanging off of him. He had suffered great pain and was bent on self-destruction. That is, until the evening he met Jesus. And that's when everything changed. When the pig herders witnessed their income going over the cliff, they hurried to tell the owners. The people of the area came out to find that the pigs indeed were gone, and so were the demons, and the demoniac himself, why, he was sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. Here sat the man who just before had been the antithesis of peace, the uncontrollable outcast that nobody can tolerate. And suddenly, now, here he sits, a model of peace and tranquility. Only, only Jesus can accomplish that. He's done it for each of us, which is why we need to share our life-changing faith story. If he has filled you with peace and forgiveness and hope and joy, you got to tell that. Now Luke adds this really interesting twist at the beginning of the story. This is when they first get... To the other side. Luke 8 27 says this, when Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon possessed man from the town. Here's the part that's, that's interesting. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. In other words, this man was running around in the tombs and the caves naked through the fields and through the towns naked. He didn't have clothes. But when the people came out to see, both Mark and Luke tell us this, that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. So let me ask you, where did he get the clothes? The Bible doesn't tell us, but I would suggest that Jesus may have given the man the very robe he was wearing. The shirt off his back, if you please. And wouldn't that be just like Jesus? When Jesus changes a life, he attends to the smallest of details. But what's interesting to me is that when the people came out, they couldn't see past their fears. They should have, they should have looked at this and said, wait a minute, the demons are gone. And this man is sitting here in his right mind. That means that this Jesus could heal our illnesses, bring hope to our broken existence, mend our broken homes, and forever change our lives with the power of his peace. Instead, their fear won out. What they needed was his peace. What they let rule was their fear. Oh, people, don't do that. Don't let your fears win out over the peace that only Jesus can give. I, I didn't know this, uh, but Amazon tracks the highlights of those customers who use ebooks, and they can tell which books and which sentences in those books are highlighted most. The internet giant recently released their findings. Now, I was encouraged to learn that the Bible is still the most highlighted book among e-readers. That's pretty cool information. Do you know which is the most highlighted verse according to Amazon? You'd think it was John 3.16, but it's not. That's number two. The number one highlighted verse in e-readers, according to Amazon, is Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. 
Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Now listen, here it is. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. We live in a time where there is so much turmoil that people are hungry and desperate for the peace that only can come through the Prince of Peace himself, which is why if you have found that peace... You've got to tell your life-changing story. Now, the next verse is a pivotal verse. Chapter 5, verse 18 in Mark. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. If I were to summarize that verse, I would say, Jesus told the man, Go tell your life-changing faith story. Now, fast forward to Mark 8. Mark 8, okay? This is sometime later. We don't know how much later, but sometime later, Jesus returns to the Decapolis for a second time. And this time, he has met with huge crowds. Funny, isn't it? The first time, no one was there except this man who lived among the tombs. The community had asked Jesus to leave, and he had left. But when he returned, there were hundreds, even thousands, who gathered to hear him. What made the difference? I'll tell you what I think. It was this man who's the only person in the story who didn't get what he asked for. You realize that? This is, this is really something. The demon said, we want to go into the swine, not in the abyss. Jesus said, okay, you can go into the swine. The people said, we don't want you around here. We want you to leave. Jesus said, okay, I won't stay. I'll leave. And the man said, I want to go with you, Lord. And he said, no. No, you can't go with me. You go back and tell your life-changing faith story. And the man did. He had done his work well. It is in the, it is in the Decapolis people that Jesus feeds the 4,000. And I suspect this man, the former demoniac, was sitting in the front row, dead sinner, smiling from ear to ear when it happened. Don't miss this. Long before this moment, or not long before this moment, Jesus had fed the 5,000 over in Judea, and they had, how, when Jesus he had five loaves and two small fish, remember the story? Fed 5,000 sitting on the hillside. Help me out here. How many basketfuls did they take up afterwards? 12. That's exactly right. How many tribes of Israel were there? How many apostles? 12. So you got this number 12, which describes God's people. This is Jesus saying, I can do more than you even imagine. I can provide you with more than you can possibly understand. I'm going to take care of you. You are my people. I've got 12 basketfuls left over. You cannot, you cannot outestimate me. Okay, so that, that's what happened before. Here we have a similar situation. These on the other side have been with him for three days. Here's again one of those wonderful three-day stories in, in the scripture. And Jesus suggests that they be fed. The disciples don't seem to care. They give the same lame answer they gave early. And they said, well, where are we going to buy bread? Hadn't they already seen Jesus take a lunch and feed 5,000? Ah, yes, they had. But that was on the other side. That was with God's people. Oh, come on, Jesus. You're not going to do the same for these people on the other side. You're not going to do the same for these pagan, idol-worshiping, pork-eating, Jew-hating Gentiles, are you? Jesus said, how many loaves you got? You ready for this? 
They had seven loaves. Anybody remember how many basketfuls they took up after the feeding of the 4,000? Seven. How many ancient Canaanite tribes lived in the Decapolis? Seven. Do you think that Jesus is trying to say, you're my people too? I love you folks too. God wants you to be healed too. God wants you to enjoy the bread of life too. I'm come to bring salvation to you. Oh, what a powerful story. And all of this happened because one man, one man, willingly and enthusiastically told his life-changing faith story. You see, Jesus took the disciples way out of their comfort zones to teach them two vital truths. That he is greater than any other power or force in this world. And secondly, all people, all people, all people matter to him. You see, we resist talking to others about Jesus because we fear they'll ask questions that we can't answer. Folks, I learned a long time ago, I can't even answer the questions I ask, let alone the questions that other people ask. But I've learned this also, that most people aren't really interested in the deep theological questions to begin with. They, they just want to know, what has Jesus done in your life? What does Jesus mean to you? And that's a story I can answer. That's a story that you can answer. Now, we're back to the whole one life theme, folks. We're to build relationships, genuine, lasting relationships with others who don't know, so that hopefully down the road we can share our faith story as we listen to their stories. That's what the one life thing is all about. You got this. You know your story. Now, by the way, in this value, we use the word, we tell life-changing faith stories. Uh, some people have said, I think the word share would be better there. Now, share is a really good word. We share life-changing faith. I, I get that, but it's not the best word. And here's why. You ready for this? Share gives us too much wiggle room. Okay. Well, I'm going to share my life in the things that I do. I'm going to share my story by my actions and deeds. Well, actions are important. They do matter. But they don't tell the whole story. And it is the faith story of every believer that is so compelling. But that comes through words. So let me tell you a dynamic, unforgettable faith story about a man that I met in, decade, uh, met in India about a decade ago. You see, I could have met him but I wouldn't have known his story if he didn't tell me. At the time, Mahi Paul was a dynamic preacher in New Delhi, but he'd not always been such. At one time, he had been the leader of a Hindu extremist group who had gathered weapons and guns and swords and stockpiled those all together. He had made a vow that he would not stop until there was no Bible left and no Christian left in the city of New Delhi. Now, during the time that he's doing this, Mahi Paul's wife had suffered with an illness for 13 years. She'd endured multiple surgeries. They had spent uh, almost all of their income and, and their savings, which wasn't much to begin with, searching for an answer to the illness only to end up having her become bedfast. Mahi Paul had gone everywhere and talked to everyone he knew about something that would heal his wife. Nothing. There were no answers. One day, unexpectedly, a Sikh showed up at the door of their house. Now, a Sikh is not, is not a Christian, 
Uh, it, it is another group there in India. But the Sikh showed up at the house and told him that Jesus could heal his wife. Mahi Paul gave the man 10 seconds to get out of his yard before he killed him. And the Sikh left. But when he closed the door, he thought, you know, I have tried everything. I have done everything. I don't know why this person showed up at my door to do this. I have nothing to lose. And so for the next 21 days, he prayed, Lord Jesus, heal my wife. At the end of those 21 days, God healed his wife and she was restored. Mahi Paul was, was never going to be the same again. He had 65 idols and pictures in his house. He destroyed them all. He wanted to know this Jesus. He wanted to know how to become a follower of this Jesus. He approached 20 preachers to learn about Jesus, and all of them ran away because they knew of his vow. Eventually, he became a Christian. He, his extended family disowned him. He couldn't get a job for 10 months. He and his immediate family lived under a tree. And then they met Ajay Law. Ajay is one of the missionaries that we support here at Sherwood Oaks. He ended up going to Central Bible Academy and became a powerful preacher. At that time, at that time when I met him, 2,000 people had come to know Jesus Christ through the preaching of Mahi Paul. 14 times in four years, he'd been imprisoned for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But two of the policemen in the jail became believers, one of whom is even playing the drums in the worship band. It is an awesome story. I stood there transfixed. I, my jaw was open as I listened and hung on every word. What a story. Now I know what some of you are thinking. I don't have a dynamic faith story like that. Me either. I grew up in a strong Christian home, wonderful grandparents and parents who pointed out the way of faith. But I'm here to tell you, folks, I never saw the clouds part. I never heard the voice of God. I didn't come close to losing my life because of some decision that I'd made until the hand of God providentially snatched me out of the jaws of death and saved me. I don't have an exciting faith story. Mine is dull, boring, and plain vanilla. Does anybody else have a story like that? I mean, I grew up in the church. I, my name was on the cradle roll. I can't remember a day when I wasn't in the body of Christ. Okay, here's what I want you to know. You don't have to have some kind of a dynamic story like that. Plain vanilla works because it's your story. It's my story. And what people want to know is, why does Jesus still matter to you after all these years? Oh, I, I, that's easy to tell. I, I, I know nobody else who can do for me what Jesus Christ alone can do. So in the next couple weeks, try this. Ask a friend, a coworker, a person in your life group, or whoever to grab a lunch or go get a cup of coffee. And each of you share your faith story, will you? Practice it a little bit. Get some feedback. Learn how to tell your story so that it matters to somebody else. You see, and you say, well, why would I do that? It's because our goal as followers of Jesus Christ is to take his message of grace to those who are on the other side, to step out of our comfort zones, to share our life-changing faith stories with those who desperately need hope, peace, and forgiveness, but they just don't know where to find that. We can encourage one another as we reach out to those who need to know Jesus. You see, their pain is real. Their need is great. And God wants them to find him so they can come home too. So folks, go tell your story. 
Tell them how much Jesus has done for you and all of the people will be amazed. Let's sing. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv.